0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Oh, the moon. yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. hi This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart.
1: Thank you. Progressive
0: Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.
1: This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast. With your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. This place is an
0: insane asylum in
2: the swamp! Oh my!
0: Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs.
2: It's time. It's FSU week. We have dispatched the Vandals. On to one of the biggest games of the year. James, are you ready Thanks some people
3: i'm ready i like that intro we don't even know where we are or what's happening it's just florida state week here we are uh alan williams alongside james D. Virgilio here in the game nation football <laughs> podcast this is probably not the first time you've ever tuned into the show but if it is here we are and uh typically at this point in the show alan and i go on about donos a dono is a donation if you've never heard that uh, if you're new we're just going to
1: treat everyone That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.
3: Unlike they're new. And the way you can give this show a dono is if you like the content, you could head on to Patreon. And in less than like a minute and a half, maybe two minutes, you can sign up to give us a small, medium or large dono. So, for example, this past week, we had a new large dono from Alex Shavers. Alex, thank you so much. Welcome aboard. Let's go. Appreciate that. And we had a small dono uh, from Jim Matulis, which seems close to being right? Jim, if I pronounce your name incorrectly, please write me hate mail on your favorite medium. And as always, the reigning champ all season long, our top supporter, Alexander Leventhal. Uh, He is the man, the myth, and the legend. But if you like the content, seriously, drop us a like on Facebook, hit us up on Twitter, send us an email, or most importantly, give us a dono. We'd love your donos. Always makes us happy during the week when I get the little email that says, you've got a new patron on Patreon. All right, Alan, let's quickly talk about the Idaho game. There were some things that are worth discussing before we head over to the Florida State game. This game wound up having a point spread, which I thought was pretty interesting. It wound up being 39 and a half. I wish I would have caught that earlier in the week and, and backed up the truck on that. I did predict a 62 to 10 victory, and we won 63 to 10. So, that was close. I think
2: we predicted the same thing, essentially.
3: Yeah, you said you wanted to make the same score, and so wow. we were all over it. So wow. the question I should ask you then is, since we predicted the score to be basically that, were you impressed by how we played, or was this just what you expected?
2: Well, this is so hard, because like, it's like we talk about at the beginning of the season. What is this performance worth? Now, at the beginning, you're, you you want to peek at it. Like, what's going on? Don't get too high or too low. I think the same thing with this game. Uh, I don't know if I was impressed, per se, but I thought we did what we needed to do. Nobody got hurt. Uh we got some reps for some young guys. We put them away early. Defense played well. Offense played well. Idaho was as bad as we thought they would be. Uh I don't know if I want to use the word impressed. That's probably too strong. But uh it was nice. I'm thankful for the way we played. I guess I'll say that. Yeah, we could have we could have played how Alabama did against the Citadel. Right, just uninterested.
3: Which which would have been, I think, a, maybe a warning sign, because we're not Alabama, that things to come against Florida State would have been bad. But you and I both expected this. The game went, I think, more or less as we expected. So therefore, I'm not impressed. It's an FCS opponent. You should do that. It doesn't mean anything. But all in all, there is a difference with how Florida plays under Dan Mullen versus previous coaches. And we've, we're we're going to continue to reiterate that. So I will say that. This team played like a competent football team against an overmatched football team, which Alan fits my season-long narrative and career-long narrative for Dan Mullen, which is that he should efficiently and ruthlessly dispatch inferior teams. And we have more or less
2: done that all year long. So this this theme continued last Saturday. Sure. I mean, this is, uh, this is what you would expect. Now, we've had these games, not an FCS-level opponent at the end of the year, but, you know, I guess lower level FBS teams where we've come close to losing in this weird little spot pre FSU and it hasn't boded well. So as you said, I mean, it's nice that we did what we needed to do. Dan Mullen got the team ready. They didn't look like they were sleepwalking, even though this was a noon game. I was a little worried. They'd come out flat. You know, Chauncey Gardner basically took care of that, you know, right away with that pick six. I, I even missed that because I was two minutes late getting into the stadium, you know, But Chauncey, you know, wasn't waiting waiting around for me. Okay, he's normally the headline every week. Not a major story this week because of the dominance of everyone around him. But thoughts on Felipe's performance. Did it give you any encouragement going into FSU?
3: No, I think he's still who he is. I think the national media wrote some very flowery narratives about how red-hot he was and how fantastic he was throwing the football. I think he made some some fine throws. He made some characteristically bad Felipe Franks throws overthrowing mm-hmm. an open Van Jefferson. He did make a really good throw. Uh, we were already well ahead in the game, but his post route to Tyree Cleveland is right. probably the first throw. time I've ever seen him throw a touch pass post route, high soft to an area where Cleveland could easily run into it. So that was something. That was nice. Maybe he'll carry on one or two of those against Florida State. I don't know, but that was nice. So I'll I'll say that there. But no, I think it's more the same from Franks. We talk about it each week because there tends to be this recurring narrative that if Franks does well, or he he throws for 275 yards, which is a career high for him, and he throws for several touchdowns, that he's maybe solved something.
2: Turned a corner and something like that. On this
3: podcast, we're not trying to hate on anyone. I think we're just trying to bring everyone down to earth to say, look, when you play against teams that are vastly overmatched, you're going to look good, especially in an offense that sets you up to look good when guys are wide open. You should you should be able to do that. So he's doing the job we expected him to do at his level. Nothing more, nothing less. However, Alan, the main reason we're talking about the Idaho game is not to talk about the starters, but to talk about the red shirt rule benefits. We mentioned last week that this game would feature for the first time ever, probably a lot more freshmen playing than you've seen before at this stage of the season. And of course, that was the case, as almost the entire roster was on display. Uh, Alan, give me some of the the maybe benefits of this happening at this stage. We talked a little bit about last week. Put a little put a little capsule on. Now that we've seen it and you've experienced it, how does this benefit a college football team?
2: Yeah, this is great. Uh, this is one of the big benefits of the rule. Now, one is, you know, if you have an injury at a certain position, you don't this late in the year, you don't burn someone's red shirt just to like fill in the gaps for one game, but I think it's great for the development of these guys. So they get a chance to take the field coaches, see what they do, get some live reps, even if it gets a team as inferior as Idaho, there's a ton of benefit to that. Um, it allows these coaches to, I think, keep the guys engaged and allows them to, you know, play in a moment in the swamp, you know, at the end of the season when, uh, you know, there's not a lot on the line in that particular game, but there's a lot on the line for them individually to show what they can do. Uh, so I'm, really thankful for this rule. I think it's great for college football. I think it's great for the players. And it does may have some unintended consequences like the weird Kelly Bryant stuff and some of the weird midseason transfers, but this is when you're seeing the benefit of it, that these guys get a chance to play. And um, we'll mention him in a second, probably Jacob Copeland, the guy who's hasn't really, who has been hurt all year. Now he can play in all the rest of the games because he's finally healthy. And he has a, you know, has a chance to show up in a few games without burning a year of eligibility. I think it was great to see the excitement
3: the players had to Totally. Get on the field. And if you put yourself in the head of a, a, we'll call them elite. Of course, most of these guys that are on our roster that got some playing time on Saturday are not elite in the traditional definition, but you've practiced hard all year long. You've survived. If you're just a freshman fall camp, if you're an early enrollee, you've done spring and fall. You've sat on the sidelines for almost every single game. Maybe you got a couple of minutes or a couple of plays in the first couple of games. And then you've really just gotten into the grind of a season without the reward of playing a game. And you can see the excitement for those guys to be on the field. They don't care they're playing Idaho. They get a chance to be in the swamp. Their family and friends can watch them on ESPNU. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. I think it's probably a huge morale booster. Those guys now have item on film. They can look at this week before the Florida State game. I imagine it just re-engages the entire team with what's going on. And it does allow the coaches to see how players have improved because playing in the game, as we keep saying is fundamentally different than playing in practice. Totally. And,
2: you know, we'll talk about some of these guys in a minute, but probably the headline of these red shirt players, I'm assuming he'll still red shirt. That's the plan for him is one. Emery Jones. We left him for dead a few weeks ago. We're surprised at his level involvement in the season. What are your thoughts now? Do you want to readjust your opinion on his trajectory?
3: Well, to be fair, we always thought that Emery would play in this sequence towards the end. We were shocked that he played in the Georgia game. Right. But we always imagined he'd play he played in Idaho. The but
2: thought maybe that he would get some but, Tim Tebow like snaps throughout the year and, and like, just be used throughout the whole season.
3: Right. So sort of that was the roller coaster effect, right? So he reappears in Georgia after we assumed he would have been sprinkled through. Uh, maybe in, in more important package times or whatever. And he kind of randomly shows up in the Georgia game. And then all the talk this past week, Alan, was that he was not going to play in this Idaho game because we were going to save him. for FSU. And we said, this is going to really show us how Dan Mullen approaches things. But I think in reality, I'm happy about this because I hope that Dan Mullen is signaling that the bowl game we play in is stupid garbage that no one cares about, which is what bowl games are. And I'm going to keep saying that, which I think he's indicating that you don't play Emory Jones in this game, if you think your bowl game really means something to you, because you don't want to risk, quote unquote, burning his red shirt. But I think Tim Mullins to the point to where maybe we walk on, maybe we walk on our walk on onto the field to be our starting quarterback if Franks is hurt. If it means that Emory played in the Florida State game some, I think he might do that. And we're going to, get to talk about that a little bit later. But I think all in all, Emory looked good. He looked good. And I will say that I've got, I've got some connections that know some players on the team and know some other guys that can talk openly about what's going on. I won't name names to talk about what's going on here, but we did get a pretty interesting report last week that essentially the three quarterbacks are something like this. Franks and Trask, not cerebrally gifted, if you will, right? Struggle to grasp the game. Franks is better, as Dan Mullen says, at getting the team into plays. Trask struggles with that. Trask better post-snap, executing, passing plays, struggles to do other things. And then Emery is slow. Not slow with his ability to process or learn or slow mentally, but he's just slow making his reads right now. He's behind. That's the case going on with Emery. I think based upon what Dan Mullen said after the game, it seemed like Mullen was even pleasantly surprised with Emery's performance. And that leads me to believe that Emery... Maybe again, somewhat of a gamer versus a practice guy, because Dan was pretty flowery. I think he exceeded Dan's expectations for him, which again, leads me to believe that maybe Emery was a little faster in the game than he was in practice of processing because he's playing a game versus trying to be perfect in practice. I don't know the answer to those questions, but I think all in all, it's safe to say that Emery, especially according now to some of the players in the team, seems to be turning the corner beginning to understand how to make these reads, but he is still slow in processing what to do, which again, we've mentioned a lot here, Alan, is very typical for quarterbacks at this stage. We've talked a lot about young guys, and when you see a a true freshman that's able to make quick reads, that's very, very rare. It's pretty normal. So I think Emory maybe tends to be trending more towards the normal curve, and you could argue after the Idaho game, maybe has bumped up in Dan Mullen's own hierarchy of feeling better, about what is going on with emery so i think to put a capsule on this we thought he'd be used more we heard reports that he was maybe woefully behind and then he gets some playing time in georgia which was curious then disappears again then the thought is we're going to save him then comes out and does very very well against idaho by all accounts and i think breaking him down i'll give you the 10 second breakdown i thought he kept his eyes downfield very nicely his footwork looked very good and he threw a very good ball he threw a much more accurate ball than felipe did on a wide variety of passes that he made. And of course he is a better runner. So there is that to be said. I thought he looked competent for where he's supposed to be right now. And that's probably as big of a Testament to Dan Mullen's ability to make a guy progress as it is to
2: anything else. Yeah. I liked what I saw from him. He seemed a lot more confident out there than what we saw earlier in the season. He made some nice throws. I mean, if you're thinking that this is a guy who is just a runner and like maybe we'll throw the ball occasionally on Nick Fitzgerald. That's not really who he is. That's what we've said. Um, I think I'm actually more underwhelmed by him as a runner than I want to be, especially in this offense. You know, that that's a weird thing to say, but he throws the ball. Well, it you know, comes out on time when he knows what he's doing, where he wants to put the ball. It seems like a very catchable ball. Uh, he's got some good touch down the field. He showed that against Georgia. And again, in this game, a cow Pitts dropped the ball, but it was a nice throw. Uh, So I left that game feeling much more encouraged about his trajectory. I think the thing that left us confused at the beginning of the year is we weren't as clear on Dan Mullen's philosophy of how he uses quarterbacks and how he thinks about young quarterbacks, where he's come out and been very clear. Now, again, this could be coach speak and like him obfuscating what he really thinks, but saying, I would not ever want to play a true freshman or even a redshirt freshman. Now, if he's covering up for Emory's slow development, that's one thing. But if that's what he really believes, then it's not surprising that we didn't see him. Now, I think we took the Tebow example while Dan Mullen was here and thought, okay, he's going to use Emory Jones, not exactly like Tim, but as a change of pace kind of thing. We should see him all year because you're not worried about taking Felipe off the field. If you have an all-star quarterback, you don't want him coming off the field too much, unless you have a guy who's just so electric. Now, Emory seemed like, okay, he's going to be so different than Franks. Let's get him out there in some packages I think part of the reason maybe that didn't happen is is the fact that he's not as an elite of a runner as you would think, um, noting his profile in high school. And even Dan said, you know, he's almost more of a drop back passer than he is a dual threat guy. Um, I think, you know, he's a much better runner than Franks, especially in the the read option game. He's much quicker around the corner. Obviously, he's way smaller than Franks. You can tell Emory's not a big guy. He's not going to be running QB power all game like we use Felipe. Um, so there are some differences between them even that are more significant than what I thought at the beginning of the year. But yeah, he looked good. I, that's all I can say against Idaho. You know, those were, there are a lot of open looks, a lot of easier reads than will come against more difficult opponents. But I guess, uh, you know, he could have come out there and crapped the bed and we would have been like, man, he's a waste. But he didn't, he he played well. And there's a couple things like the drop snaps. This is probably his third drop snap of the season in very limited time, his handling of the football seems really bad. Is that something you feel like he could just clean up easily in the offseason, or is that endemic of a larger problem that he has?
3: That's an interesting question. And on film, it, it seems to me that he actually is picking his head up too quickly to make a read. And you know, when you're a quarterback taking a shotgun snap, you don't look at the ball, it does become a secondary focus. You're actually making a read as you catch the ball. If you're looking at the ball, you're missing a chance to make your first read. So you're supposed to do that, but I think maybe he's a little hurried because he's trying to to go faster, which would make sense given right. the narrative that if he's actually struggling to get through a progression, he's speeding himself he's up. He's
2: cheating, trying to like get he, that one he's
3: extra and one of those snaps in the game, I think, on that fourth down and one was legitimately a bad snap. And so I think that one came off to his left hand. It was a little tricky to catch. But but yeah, certainly maybe a little bit unlucky, maybe just a little bit too quick. But those are things I think you'd expect to have them cleaned up. Of course, we're not in practice. If it's happening all the time, maybe it's a different question. I don't really know. But I think all in all, if you were hoping that Emery could compete for the job next year realistically, it certainly seems like he's trending in that direction. It looks like there will be a real quarterback competition with a guy that more fits Dan Mullen's system than Franks does beginning in the spring. And I think that's good news. You know, We made mention on this podcast if Emery wasn't the starter coming out of the gate that we were in trouble because it meant you know a, a square a square peg into a round hole was going to be our quarterback. Uh, I think next year you start to say if Franks doesn't lose the job all the way beginning in next fall, then then we're in trouble because then you're again with a guy that's not truly the guy. We'll save that discussion for later. But all in all, I think that's as good as you could have expected from memory. He looked really competent out there running running the offense, and I think Mullen again indicated that with his what I would say is a pleasantly surprised outlook on what happened other young players got a lot of playing time in this game alan give me a couple that you liked
2: i'll start with jacob copeland who was probably the most anticipated gator in this game other than emory jones now if you're not familiar with him he's a wide receiver he wore number 15 Um, i guess our highest rated recruit depending on like probably where you look but definitely one of the top players came down to a battle between us and alabama big upside for this guy strong fast really athletic you know we'll see how polished he is as an actual receiver now they made a a point to get him the ball in this game he can play next week we might see him actually in action now we have a lot of depth ahead of him but he's a guy i I think the coaches are high on by the fact that they really wanted to get him the ball because at this point of the year if you're just a guy on the roster they'll put you out there in the second half maybe you catch it maybe you don't depending on how the play goes but they purposely gave him the ball they put him out there in big situations well, big in terms of the game itself, you know. Uh, I was impressed by him. I'm excited about him in the future. What else did you notice?
3: I thought Zach Carter did a nice job, number 17 playing defensive he's end He's a big freshman, boy. Big guy as a freshman. I think he's listed at like 6'4", 270, but he just looks a lot bigger than that when he's roaming around out there. But he had a nice impact on the game. I thought he flashed pretty well. It was hard to see a lot of other stuff going on that really jumped out based primarily on how Idaho was playing or what was going on, probably under the the continual low light was CJ McWilliams against Idaho was, was getting abused. And and not only that, it was was clear that that was a game plan for Idaho. They threw almost every pass right at him. And I I'm to the point where I just feel bad for the guy now is he shouldn't see the field at Florida, but he's continually proving that unfortunately for him, he just really shouldn't be anywhere near this level of competition. Uh, But But, yeah, outside of that, I thought Cartering, it was nice to see Copeland. I think Dan Mullen managed the roster. I thought, well, you want to give a guy like Copeland touches. This is a guy that came in thinking he had a chance to make an impact right away and hasn't played at all, hasn't done anything due to some injuries and some unfortunate circumstances. So to give him five, six touches in a game is meaningful, I think, going forward.
2: I like that as well. I thought some of the younger O-linemen played pretty well. It's like, I don't know, you don't want to take too much from – backup offensive lineman in the second half of Idaho, but we're going to replace a lot of guys along the line. Um, And we need some of those young guys to step up. And I think they haven't been ready. And that's why you haven't seen some of these older guys get displaced when they haven't been playing well, but maybe that's hopeful for the future. Uh, A guy I'm really intrigued by is uh, Amari Bernie. He's number 30. Um, He's played on special teams. Um, He's, I guess, technically Chauncey's backup. At the star position, you know, Chauncey really never comes off the field. Or if he does, we're in some kind of other package of players. You know, we don't usually see a second or the backup star player, you know, Nickelback, whatever you want to call him. He's an interesting guy. He's kind of a tweener. Uh, Is he a linebacker? Is he a safety? Is he, I don't think he would be a corner. But he brings something interesting to that star position. Seems like he could be a physical guy, um, helping in the run, helping coverage and zone. It'll be Intriguing to see whether he can cover well enough in that slot position. Uh, he's got big shoes to fill with Chauncey Gardner. You know, I think leaving most likely depending on what info he gets back from the NFL, but he's a guy to, to watch next year. Cause he seems like the heir apparent at that spot, unless someone beats him out, they've had him basically in that backup spot all year. And so I guess I, you know, I like what we saw from some of our younger players. No one really totally flashed. I mean, if you hadn't seen Damian Pearson, this would have been his first game. That would have been the guy I'm sure that everyone would have wanted to see. Uh, and of course, you know, Emery was the star of the show because we were all very anxious to see him play. Um, but overall, I'm sure the coaches are pleased with what they saw. And for the guys that they weren't pleased with, they'll get to talk to him about that as well. Okay, so a topic that's been on our call sheet here for the last few weeks is the crowd. Now, this is a pretty sleepy time, sleepy game. Do you have some thoughts on the crowd. Like, how how you feeling?
3: I feel fine. I feel like this is an indictment against this kind of game in the first place. You know, why are you playing Idaho the week before you play Florida State? You know, just have a bye week. It's silly. It's it's foolish. I understand you thought they were going to be an FBS team, but even then, it's dumb. I hate I hate late season cupcake games. They make no sense to me. There's no reason for them. Even playing the even you could say arguing playing your redshirt players. There's just no reason for them. They're silly. I don't expect people to come. Pay money and bring their their family and friends to come watch a game that's going to be a complete blowout. You know we're local, but if I lived in Tampa or Miami or Jacksonville or Orlando, I wouldn't drive up to watch us play Idaho. No way. So I think that's the majority of people, uh, including those that even have tickets. And I I understand that. I think that makes sense. Long gone are the days where you just have a football game and everyone comes because there's nothing else to do. Primarily because television is so good. Keep in mind, Alan. We talked about this walking out of the stadium. A game like this. 10 years ago probably would not have been on television. It would have been pay-per-viewed and that would have significantly increased the amount of people that would have attended the game because they would have wanted to have watched it versus not watch it at all. And you take that equation out. Now you're going to get smaller and smaller numbers. I think that attend this game as a last parting note, I think it's clear now the students at the university of Florida don't really care about football. I think that's just a thing and that's probably not going to change until we have a fantastic team. I can assure you Dan Mullen is going to spend a ton of time in the off-season trying to figure out how to get the students re-energized. I would not be surprised to see them change the student ticket policy for next year. I think they would be extremely wise to either eliminate the cost entirely and make them free or even go back to something that we had as students, which is where you had a student ticket, but you could sell it to anyone. Uh, which brings the prices of tickets down for everyone else. Again, I don't think they'll go that far. I don't think our UAA is that creative, unfortunately, but something has got to be done. The student side is is in, in a woeful state right now. We have a top 15 team, quote unquote. It's hard to imagine it getting any different as time goes on. Uh, so we'll see. Keep an eye on that. We keep mentioning it because I think it is a narrative to watch. Uh, any good team does have to build a good home crowd. And I think like we've mentioned in the past decade, Alan, Florida has lost what it once had as a home field advantage. It's really just a thing now. And that does not come back overnight. So we'll see how that happens. We'll see how that goes next year. Something to keep an eye on. But for this particular game, it was not bothersome to me. You know, you expected that'd be the case against an opponent like Idaho. Yeah. It's
2: interesting. I feel like 10 years ago, the situation would have been reversed where the student section is largely full and the alumni side is rather empty. The alumni side was pretty full, even in the upper deck of the end zones was not as empty as you expect for an Idaho game, and but there was nobody on the student side. We were over there. I mean, and again, like you said, it's, I don't know if I can say, like, you have to come. We're playing Idaho, but it is the last home game of the year. It's not a heavy school time, usually. It's weird. I, so do those people who aren't coming to the games just magically start coming to the games when they're alumni in their mid-30s and they want to come back? I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe, but I doubt it. So I think the UA has to take a hard look at that decision. Now, this is not a, a unique to UF, as we said this before. This is a problem all over the country. Even in Alabama, saving is on the students to stay for the whole game. Remember that those comments from a couple years ago. I don't want to freak out about it, but it, it's a different landscape. I think you have to acknowledge that. Maybe you shrink the student section. Um, sell some more seats to alumni, like some young alumni, some cheap seats where you don't have to pay the booster fee. Get creative here. Like you said, I don't know if the UAA is creative, but I bet Mullen is going to push them. Now, whether they are able to respond, I'm not sure, but I think you're right about Mullen sees that and realizes he can't just say in a press conference, everyone needs to show up and it'll get fixed. There's going to have to be some building, some creativity, some marketing, maybe go over to, text a and and watch how they indoctrinate people and create some psycho crazies over there. Um, but enough about the crowd. It, it was fine on the alumni side, not on the student side. We'll see how that shows up next year. Let's talk about coaching decisions, mainly playing time. Did you have any issues with the way Dan parceled out his playing time in this week?
3: No issues, especially because we really hoped that Emory would play in this game. You know, we laid out I guess I selfishly laid out my plan that Emory would definitely play a lot in Idaho and that you could even use him for Florida State if you had to. And who cares about the bowl game? The bowl game's a carrot, but it gives you flexibility, like we mentioned. You can still confidently use Emory in Florida State if Franks goes down. And I think, like we mentioned, the bowl game to people like me just doesn't matter. I also think the bowl game ticket sales wise indicates it doesn't matter to a lot of other people and it definitely does not matter to the players. So I like the Dan. I think Kind of tipped his hat a little bit to that situation. I appreciate that. As far as the other decisions go, you and I talked a lot about this with Chauncey. I thought it was interesting how long Chauncey played. He played almost the entire first half. It was a point where he actually almost got hurt. To me, Chauncey gets to pick six, and I think I just take him out of the game. I mean, like I don't, I don't know what he's in there for. He's maybe your best defensive player. Maybe your most important defensive player. because like Certainly you most unique. Like you mentioned, there's no experience behind him playing at the nickel position and uh, you don't want to lose the guy Henderson played much less but why play Henderson at all this killed me it's not his senior day you cannot afford you cannot afford to lose your corner I mean even for a second you know what kind of serious trouble we're in why play him at all that was confusing to me as well uh, and then you know I thought Franks is probably in the game way too long why not give Emery second third and fourth quarter? But I think a lot of that did have to do with like surging Franks' confidence as high as it could possibly go before we played Florida State, and he kept having him throw the ball. So I liked the way he utilized Franks, although clearly I think he was in there too long. I liked that he was having him throw the football to, I think, build that confidence. And Dan understands that side of things. So really, I know you mentioned this. Henderson was probably the biggest question mark, followed very closely by Chauncey. You mentioned this as well, which I think is a good point. Chauncey's playing time, Allen, if nothing else, probably indicates that he's very serious about heading to the NFL. I think right now, you and I mentioned this, he's the best nickelback we've had in a long time. I would have an impossible time not believing he's not going to be one of the top three or four nickels chosen in the league. Therefore, I think he's going to go. And I think his playing time may have indicated this was his last game in the swamp. He didn't want to play just one play. He wanted to get his last moments in astute point by you we'll see if that remains to be true yeah
2: we'll see what he runs in the 40 that'll probably determine everything Duke Dawson ran a great time and got taken in the second round I think he's on Duke Dawson's level now they're different they they're better and worse at different things let me hammer this Henderson thing for a second this was colossally dumb to me and I'm very surprised Dan did this I don't some coaches view this differently I would have not even dressed him for this game now you have other guys who are great Polite, Zuniga, Jefferson, one of those goes down, you have someone comparable at those positions. We have nobody. I don't even know if I would have played Dean. I would have maybe played Dean a couple plays, just so, you know, more reps, you know, get him out there. But Henderson, if he goes down, we're kind of screwed. He he gets nothing from this game. There's no upside. He doesn't need any reps. He's been he's been a starter for 2 years. What is Idaho going to do that's going to help him? Now, a corner is not someone who usually gets hurt. It's not like that's a position that you're most worried about. But I feel like there's no upside and only downside. Now, I would love to be in a real conversation about this with Dan and really like press him and ask him what what were you thinking? Give me give me the vision for why you would want to play him and maybe he has a good answer. From where I'm sitting, I can't think of one. It just seems like a colossal mistake. Like You only lose in this scenario, and it really frustrates me that we we would play him. Um, Now, you can't hold out everybody. I realize that. You can't play scared, but when you have a uniquely talented person at a position where you have no depth, and the gap between him and the next guy is monumental, it's astronomical, you're just risking a ton for nothing. So, I don't know, Dan. Figure that one out for me. Call me. Let me know what you're thinking. Okay, let's talk about some national games. This first one was a doozy. We sat in the parking lot and watched the end of it. Ohio State 52, Maryland 51.
3: Wow. My cousin Jordan texted me after the game, his senior year at Maryland, that he's in a tremendous amount of pain. Please help me ease my pain. <laughs> <laughs> that was brutal. And he's just. A, and we felt the pain. We watched this game. My buddy had a tailgate right across from Pizza by the Slice or Italian Gator, which is our our post game tradition when we win. And we're watching this game at the end. And you, you're just. You're just. Come on, Maryland. You know my dad went there. My cousin went there. I'm from Baltimore. There's a lot of ties there. Plus, I don't like Ohio State. Urban is keeling over on the sideline. <laughs> Urban is oddly checking himself to see if he has the cojones to go for it on fourth down on national television multiple times. There's some weird moments in this game going on here, right? But lo and behold, Maryland goes for two, which we could talk about whether or not you like or dislike that. I think it's a coin flip. You and I, Alan, had a good discussion on I it. like it a lot. Alan liked it. I, I didn't like it. I thought being at home, kick the extra point. You get the ball first, score, put the pressure on him. However, the play they called is an absolute game winner. Wide open, basic hitch route, misses it and a that, bunny is, of a pass. That, that is a, a season changer for both teams if Ohio State loses that the national television networks hate everyone they hate Maryland it takes all the narrative out of the Ohio State Michigan game that they want right now which now this becomes a quote-unquote playoff game and as you mentioned Alan I think Matt Canada is not necessarily going to get a super serious look from Maryland I think will be a candidate I think they like him I think they still view him as like a an assistant, if you will, as an offensive coordinator. If he wins that game, though, he's almost a shoe in for getting the head coaching job. So he calls a play. His quarterback, who, by the way, made his first start ever and hung 50 points on Ohio State, misses an easy throw to win. Epic, epic game. I mean, just an incredibly fun college football game. We were buzzing afterwards just watching it. That's how college football really should be. Tons and tons of fun. Plays we made on both sides of the ball. Gutsy performance from Maryland. Has had a totally manic year. But ultimately, Ohio State does what they normally do, which is find a way to
2: win, even when it feels like they just deserve to lose. It's crazy, and we'll see if their luck runs out. But like you said, that was a wild game, super fun. Feel bad for the Maryland fans. That would have been a great, great win. How State, are they teetering on the edge of oblivion? We'll find out. Michigan State, 6, Nebraska, Cornhuskers, (laughs) 9. The opposite game, I think, from the previous one. A good win for Nebraska, though.
3: Yeah, don't don't look now, but Scott Frost almost had an, a road win against Ohio State. Almost has won three in a row. He didn't, right? But now gets a, a good win over Michigan State. Their offense, as you said, is so bad. And we talked about it when predicting this game. That Nebraska's defense, which has not been a defense at all, shut them down. And and that's interesting. So the Mike D'Antoni experiment at Michigan State's, getting a little long in the tooth. I think I have to begin to ask myself, if I'm a Michigan State fan, Is this what I want for the foreseeable future? And I'm going to leave that there because he's been fantastic. I don't know that you could do better, but at some point in time, every two or three years out of, I don't know, five, you have a team that just cannot score a single on point. And and that has got to be a frustrating loss on the road at a Nebraska team. It's nowhere near ready to play. And you've got to think if you're a Michigan State fan, Nebraska is going to be good. Scott Frost is going to make this happen. I don't know. It seems like it just seems like a very frustrating loss for Michigan State.
2: Well, it would be quite the experiment if we got uh, Mike D'Antoni to come in there and coach this team. Mark D'Antonio. Mark D'Antonio. Yeah. Mike D'Antonio is, yeah, is right? a good coach. So
3: similar though.
2: But Mike <laughs> D'Antoni, you know, I think you know he's done a great job with the Suns, with the Rockets. I think he could do wonders. All offense. All offense. Actually, their offense, All would be offense a lot better. Yeah, that's what I'm be, saying. It would be quite it would an experiment. Be so good, but. If you're Michigan State can you really ask much better than what he's brought to that program no I don't think so but how many six nine games can you watch that's brutal I mean their offense has is, is taken a hit they they lost some people this is a even a down year for them offensively but gosh we you know we complain about the must era but you know that make he makes the must champ offense look like you know, the Chiefs comparatively, I feel like sometimes they're like punt ball to the extreme.
3: Well, maybe we just dropped the first rumor for the New Michigan State coach. Con- like Condoleezza Rice. Rice is the Browns rumored coach. And I just dropped a Mike D'Antoni reference yeah. to be there. You heard so it here that first. legs, you heard it here on this podcast when I lost my mind on this fine Monday. <laughs> Thanks for correcting me. I
2: love it. Uh, Syracuse 3, Notre Dame 36. Syracuse is a good team. And Notre Dame crushed in this game was weird. It was at Yankee Stadium. Notre Dame was wearing those terrible uniforms.
3: Yeah, we kept saying and have been saying that Notre Dame is for real. As soon as they switched to Ian Book, watched that team play one time and said, that's a good football team. And they are a good football team. I think all of us love to hate Notre Dame. I know you and I do. I love to say they don't deserve it. Their schedule has not been nearly as difficult as other teams that have had to get there. But at this point in time, just watch Notre Dame play. It's hard to deny at this stage with Ian Book at quarterback that they're not a worthy team of playoff consideration. Uh, a discussion should be had, which we will have after the Florida State Week, on whether it should be four or eight teams. But for now, Notre Dame, that's a great win. Syracuse has not been getting beat like that, and they got manhandled. So, interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, Syracuse hung with a lot of different teams, beat some good teams. Now, Notre Dame schedule is kind of wonky, because some teams that are supposed to be good weren't. But still decent enough to get them in as an under... Undefeated team, especially with that win over Michigan. Okay, James, your Mountaineers 41, Oklahoma State 45. A tough, tough defeat for West Virginia and Will Greer. But Oklahoma State is so feisty.
3: We knew this game was going to be tough. We mentioned that last week. This Oklahoma State and Mike Gundy, that team, just goes down 31-14. How have they you lost so of, many games? You kind of feel like the game is over, and they just ferociously come back.
2: It's okay. amazing.
3: It was so. It was such an interesting. It was a great football game. If you didn't get to watch it, there, there's some very interesting moments where Dana Holgerson twice goes for fourth down, with nine minutes left in the game, with the lead, and a field goal puts him up six. But he recognizes that his team has no shot to even remotely stop Oklahoma State. They're just walking down the field. So then he gets it. And they go, they score and they go up ten. And you're thinking, certainly now West Virginia is going to win this game. And then Oklahoma State, just score, stop, score. I mean, you just knew it. You couldn't do it. I thought the only curious moment was Dana does that. And then West Virginia gets the ball. It's second and 10 about their own 40-yard line. They run it, and it's third and nine, and they run it, and they punt. Yeah, That, to me, is something I bet he wishes he could do over again. You have a Heisman Absolutely. Trophy candidate in Will Greer. He's taken you to the promised land. He's led you to miraculous places, and you go run, run, punt, loss. And then yet, Alan, Will Greer, in 40 freaking seconds or whatever it was, drives all the way down the field in which Dana Holgerson cataclysmically blows using a timeout Crazy. to where they run out of time on the seven-yard line
2: with a timeout still
3: left in, in their pocket. And so if I'm Dana, and I haven't read a lot about this because West Virginia, oddly, just is West Virginia. They don't make a lot of national news, even though they're a very good football team. It's right in contention. But this would have been an incredible game to do a podcast on because they so mismanaged the the fourth quarter but especially even the end where they should have had 12 13 more seconds left where Will could have gotten another playoff but Will Greer was this close to bringing them back to get another crazy victory and as we've said all year long that West Virginia schedule is incredible I mean almost every week they're having these just really fun matchups and Oklahoma State and Mike Gundy say what you want about him that's just a fun football team to follow they're six and five now but what a fun season they've had.
2: Should it be in Oklahoma or could it be in Oklahoma? They, they basically should have. They had that two-point conversion They done they again.
3: Missed an extra point. Missed Yeah, two-point conversion there to do it. I mean, really, really fascinating team. And it it's hard to win in Stillwater. But just a great college football game. Very sad for West Virginia. Any shot of Will Greer winning the Heisman is definitely over. It was a long shot anyway. And their playoff shot's over. It sets up a really interesting matchup at home against Oklahoma, what is their mindset going to be after this loss? I I don't know. It could be challenging
2: for them. It's going to be intriguing. I mean, this is something to be said for the Big 12, all their teams playing everyone every year, which you can do if you have a small conference. So, BC 21, the hated Seminoles 22. They threw a bomb at the end to go up. BC can't quite make it back down the field. I watched a lot of this one. I can't believe FSU won it, considering how they've... You know, fared previously.
3: It looked like they were not going to win it and no. then all of a sudden they they bring the safety down and have a, a post route go to the house with two minutes left, whatever the case was, which was just brutal. BC was in really bad shape. We mentioned that. I think if anything, it indicates that Florida State really is as bad as we think they are because Boston College has zero offense. I mean, just none. But there's no doubt this game has given Florida State a tremendous amount of confidence. They're their, the media, the players, it's like the whole narrative is flipped because they beat Boston College at home. So you could argue that's good or bad for our game. We're going to talk about that when we when we reset that. But, uh, but yeah, a bummer. I always want to see Florida State lose. Silver lining is we get a chance to end their season and end their bowl streak, which they mythically propped
2: up last year anyway. Yes, so. exactly. Cincinnati 13, UCF 38, Cincinnati in this early, and then they just get trounced. All right, Alan. Here's the question. It's time to ask.
3: Do you would you want to play UCF right now? Florida, you can you can play them. Sub them out for Florida State. You can play a real game that matters. You play UCF in
2: at the end of our regular season, not in the bowl game. Correct, and in a game that really matters. Ugh. I, I want to say no because I don't think we have anything to gain from it. And only stuff to lose. I mean, if we lose to them, we legitimize them. If we beat them, it's kind of like, okay, we beat them. Here's what I'll say about UCF. I think that they are a good team. And this is the unfortunate thing, the way their schedule is stacked up or whatever it is. It's like they've beaten their little sister playing one-on-one in basketball 10 times in a row. And they're like, look at this great accomplishment. Give me a trophy. It's like, you might be good, but you haven't accomplished anything. I have no way of actually knowing because I think there would be 30 to 40 teams that could go undefeated against that schedule 9 out of 10 times. Now maybe, maybe they might lose one here or there. So what they're doing is not really impressive. The team itself might be kind of impressive. And so I think that one-off game against us would only serve to legitimize them. And a loss wouldn't really do anything to them. So... I. <laughs> I'm not like scared of them. I think we, I would be really interested in the game. You know, with the, I'd have to look at it to see like would I favor us or not. But I'll say no, I don't want to play them. Not because I'm scared of it, because I, on the off chance that they do win, it only helps them.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm scared of it. I think <laughs> I think UCF would beat us. I think the matchup's bad for us. I think McKenzie Agreed. Milton is 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 a mini Drew Locke. He's not as good, but he would pick us apart, and tear us to shreds, and score at least thirty points. And the question is, do we score thirty on them? We should be able to run the ball on them, right? You can create the narratives. UCF is not as good as the elite teams. But, and we said this a lot, it's unfair that they have to campaign so hard to get their shot to play against a good team. This is the problem we can now say. Let's just wave a wand and say UCF wins every single game for the next three years. No team, no team in the Power Five is going to schedule them. Not going to do it. This is the problem Boise State ran into. Boise State tried for so long when Chris Peterson was there to actually schedule real opponents. And you know what? Nobody would play them because of what you just mentioned. So at some point in time, what do you do if you're UCF? I don't really know. You're kind of in a weird spot. You've got this good team. You're going to have Milton not lose a game in two plus years. And his reward is going to be really next to nothing. That's that's the problem with being in an outside conference. I do think, however... They're making enough noise that maybe my dream happens and we get the 18 playoff, not the 14 playoff. And then they could potentially get smashed by, you know, an Alabama or someone else or whatever. But I think at this point in time, it's time to, to again, look at, look at why I like Scott Frost so much. Why you like Scott Frost so much is what he built at UCF is not just like a flash in the pan. It's a program that is now being sustained by a guy that we don't know if is good per se yet. He's an excellent caretaker right now. That is something UCF was bad. Don't let, don't let you forget that They were not good. And they are very good right now. Either way, big time win for them. I know they're sky high. Uh, interesting to see what happens with this process and how much they crow about it and where it goes. But I think a Florida-UCF matchup right now, like you mentioned, doesn't benefit us at all. It's a little scary. I think they're a good football team. Uh, and I... I
2: greatly dislike their their fan base which is why I think so many sure. people root against them. Yeah, well, I, they brought this on themselves the fact that they instead of being the plucky underdog they're the annoying little brother who's, you know, proclaiming themselves to be the best and you're like, "Yeah, just get out of here. I'm done with you." Okay, Ohio State, excuse me. Iowa State 10, Texas 24, a good win for Texas here.
3: Yeah, Tom Herman, the guys we mentioned I think have acquitted themselves well. So Tom Herman Good season, tough losses, but there's no doubt in my opinion that next season is going to be very high expectation. They're going to need to
2: really fulfill that because if they have the same type of season they had this year, it's going to be disappointment. But a good result, they're they're going to be in the Big Twelve title game. They have a chance to, you know, do really well for themselves. Yeah, I think you keep you keep an eye on them because to me, their trajectory is indicating that
3: they are moving in that direction. Next year will be the watershed moment. That's the year three moment. But right now. This is a good season if I'm a Texas fan. Your losses were close. It could have been much better, but you're clearly getting better. That's a good win against Iowa State. Uh, I think that they are they are moving in that path, as is, by the way, a game we're not talking about here, Chip Kelly, UCLA-USC.
2: Final nail in the coffin there for Mr. Helton, I believe. I think it's
3: got to be right. Fraudulent coaching there when you've got a top quarterback that goes to the NFL kind of props you up. But Chip Kelly's turned UCLA run as the year goes on. You're seeing Scott Frost win. Of course, you're seeing my boy Joe Moore at at, uh, Mississippi State do well. So a lot of these guys we targeted, I think, fairly to us are are making their teams better, as is Dan Mullen. So maybe, Alan, if anything, the narrative of this past year's coaching search will be that you had a lot of really good candidates. And And some bad ones. Yeah, this year it might look different, though. That's a lot of top-heavy candidates, though. Three or four guys in one coaching carousel that could be really
2: good is, I think, a little bit unusual. For sure. Maybe some bad ones. Maybe one we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah, one we're definitely gonna talk about it in a minute. All
3: right, SEC roundup. Quicker results here. Probably the only one that really needs any kind of discussion. Citadel had a chance to take a lead on Alabama in the third quarter.
2: Crazy, insane. I looked at the score; it was ten to ten. I was like, "Oh, they must not be playing Tua, or some weird stuff is happening." I was like, "No, they're playing Tua. His numbers are okay. What is going on?" I, I didn't watch it obviously, but you know, Alabama asleep at the wheel. They finally wake up, put it
3: on them. It's amazing that Bama could even be sleepy enough to allow a, a losing team like Citadel to come Well, the
2: kind of them. triple option-y kind of stuff, I mean, it's hard even for Bama. I'm sure they prepared for it, not at all, because they spent all their time prepping for Auburn. But it probably just gave Nick Saban some joy. This is what he really wanted, just to be able to yell at his team at halftime, because he wanted to do that anyway, and that gave him license to do it. Yeah,
3: that's for sure. Interesting there, right? UMass, 27, Georgia, 66. Whatever. Middle Tennessee, 24, Kentucky, 33. Close. Close game for a while. Very close. Close game for a while. Arkansas six Mississippi state 52 that continue the head scratching for the, the
2: Chad Morris debut at Arkansas. Maybe I mean, it's so up and down, so up and down. If you let Mississippi state score 52 on you, that that's embarrassing. They can barely get a first down some weeks.
3: Yeah. They figured it out outside of the Bama game. Mississippi state now is a juggernaut on offense. A lot of that has to do with playing softer defenses in the West, Missouri 50, Tennessee 17. I want to highlight one thing about this game, Alan, this is why you cannot use common opponents to look at how good one team is over another. UCF loves the common opponent argument. Look at Pitt. We beat Pitt. Pitt's good. They're playing the ACC title game. Pitt almost beat Notre Dame, blah, 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 whatever. Can't use it. Missouri just drubs Tennessee, and Missouri has lost to teams like South Carolina. You just It doesn't matter. It's all matchup-based. Either way, great win for Missouri. Pruitt, maybe another head-scratcher there. Your defense was playing really well, and you just get obliterated by, again, what I think is a symptom of the disease here in the SEC— you only have a couple of guys that can really pass the ball in this league. And if your team can't handle that, which is what
2: the case of Missouri, Tennessee, you just get blasted. I think Missouri might be the fourth best team in the sec. I mean, they have some weird losses that, I mean, South Carolina loss was in like a monsoon or something like that, but Tennessee was feeling themselves kind of off that previous week. So yeah, I, I guess I would go like Bama, Georgia, LSU, missouri right it warms my heart to hear you say that i took a lot of flack from you all year long by liking missouri i did not believe i, I did not it. believe
3: you're a believer now although i think it's short-lived for them i definitely think that their their wheels are going to go off the train this is going to be like drew lock situation yeah okay. it's going to be like the clay helton scenario this, yeah I mean, it's gonna going, be fascinating they're going down this is just an anomaly and they're going down they I will have so. a new coach there i think it did next year liberty zero auburn 53 nothing to see here rice 10 lsu 42 nothing to see Whatever. there UAB 20. This was actually the game that was supposed to be decent. Uh, A&M
2: 41. A&M covers a the spread there. Decent win business. for a and I mean, UAB, props to them. I mean, this program was dead. The state of Alabama killed it for a year. They brought it back, and they're already competitive. So the coach there, I think Coach Clark is his name, doing a great job. I, I mean, it's really re- remarkable what, what he's been able to accomplish. It's
3: unbelievable. Nine and one entering that game. Nine and two. Now that's that's hard to even understand with a program that was killed uh, just a couple of years ago. Old Miss twenty nine, Vandy thirty six. We talked a lot about the SEC least against the West, but this year it's been different. A lot of a lot of wins for the SEC, SEC East. East the West. Actually,
2: more wins against the West.
3: Amazing. That's amazing.
2: I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. I I still don't know that I would pick the East and like, you know, who's stronger. But I guess the numbers played out. Some of those are matchups, obviously, but. Very controversial end here with Ole Miss Vandy. Was it a catch? Was it not? Look for yourself. But decent win for Vandy. Uh, Not a good notch for your boy, your boy, Matt Luke. Uh, Not a good result from them. Seems like maybe they're slowing down a little bit, even despite all-world quarterback Jordan Tamu, the best quarterback since Tom Brady.
3: He's incredible. Seriously, I'm going to keep saying it. Just watch that guy play. He is going to
2: do it. Well, they didn't put up enough against Vandy.
3: Big things. Vandy's defense is sneaky. Yeah, okay, they moved the ball whatever. a lot. Threw some picks. Uh, I think I think it's tough when you have to score 45 points every week to win. It's not always perfect. But regardless, I still think he's done an admirable job. They're down Scollies. They're in trouble. I don't know what else they're going to do. If, if nothing else, he's made the job seem, I think, attractive. Maybe to a guy like a Joe Moorhead. Uh, so that's okay. some other school that wants to come in and say, Hey, you know what? I'll take this. Challenge. That could be true. It could be possible. All right. Chattanooga nine, South Carolina, 49, nothing to see. Congrats. game No big deal. Good for you. Must champ. I guess you've won the fan base back. Who knows? <laughs> All
2: right. It's that time. The school out West. FSU. Personally, by far my most hated rival. My blood boils. When I think about them, I hate them. They're Satan's minions. We're going to be playing them at noon. At noon. Barn burner game. Although, I guess there's some good games at noon. Ohio State, Michigan is also at noon, unfortunately. They are five and six in danger of a losing season for the first time in like 70,000 years or whatever they calculate it to be. We are eight and three. We are a five point favorite. Before we get into the overview, let's talk about some of the meta narratives around this game. Uh, there's a lot going on here.
3: There is more than a lot going on here. At first, I thought last week when we entered this this weekend, I thought, you know what? Florida State's probably going to find a way to lose to Boston College and one we'll or this game. And, like, really what's going on? All right, the usual coach speak, you know, rivalry game, recruiting, in-state ties, everyone knows each other, you know, blah, blah, blah. Those things are all true, but those are things that we know. But in reality, this game has become something much more. So Willie Taggart wants to get – More than anything to 500. Bowl eligible. A 500 first season is actually things a lot of elite coaches did at their programs. And if you win the bowl game, you go seven and six. A lot of elite coaches did that in year one. Now, Willie Taggart's doing it with vastly superior talent. So I think he's already proven to be very incapable. But regardless, a lot to play for now for Florida State. If you're a Florida State fan, and we know what this is like being Florida fans, you're entirely delusional. Because for you, you've been very good under Jimbo Fisher. So you're still believing that, like, hey, you know what? To throw this year out, we'll be fine next year. If you can beat Florida and ruin what seems to be an upstart season for them, and win your bowl game, you can start buying into this narrative that Willie Taggart's so much fun, the players love him so much, it's so exciting, that you still kind of think something's there, right? And then, of course, lastly, this concept of momentum for the program, which is huge. Dan sort of could legitimize that, hey, listen, I'm a much better coach than you are, Taggart. You have better talent than me. I'm still going to beat you. That sets up a very important narrative, I think, on the recruiting trail. If, if Florida coaches are successful, they can make that argument. Look, we weren't not as talented as Florida State, and we handily beat them at Florida State. I don't think you want to be a part of Florida State. We're going to beat you every single year, You know, whatever the case may be. So a lot on the line here, probably most importantly for a Florida fan, aside from winning the game and the recruiting and everything else is there would be nothing more satisfying than ending Florida States absurdly propped up. And I think not real bull streak that they somehow resurrected last year when they lost a game. Like all of us have lost games during storms or whatnot. And they played at the end of the season just so they could become eligible. Nothing would bring me greater joy than to give them a losing season, make them not get extra practices during the bowl game and to end their streak. It couldn't be any better. So when BC won, I mean, lost rather, Alan, I thought to myself, how great is this? There's an extra carrot at the end of the stick for us. So seemingly there's a lot of things going on in this game. Two-year-one coaches trying to prove themselves, trying to prove out that they're solid. And I think for Taggart, it's a chance for him to resurrect the
2: entire season and make it not a total loss. You said it right there. Narratives matter in college football much more than any other sport. It's part of what it makes it so compelling. Let's play this out. FSU wins this game. Yeah, what is the talk in the offseason? Even at our worst season ever, we beat a top 15 UF team. We we're figuring it out. We're on the the arrow is pointing up for us. Look, we we won two games we beat two top twenty five teams at end of the year in BC and Florida. Like you said, they they maintain all of those streaks, all the ones that we lost under Must Champ in that four and eight year. This is a big recruiting game. There's going to have a lot of recruits. Either they beat us in in front of those recruits or we beat them. Now, one game doesn't really matter. Like if you're, if you're talking about like, you know, the long view of recruiting, but it can make a difference, especially when it comes down to a few, maybe prospects who are on the fence. Like you said, momentum. I think momentum in the offseason is huge. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of storylines. There's a lot of elements to this. Yes. They got a, They kind of peeked their head up this week with that win against BC and like, oh, maybe stuff is still okay here. I don't want it to be okay there. I, I don't know. This, this game holds a lot for me. We talked in mid-year about, okay, let me give you two scenarios. We beat Georgia and we go to the SEC title game, but we lose to FSU. Or we lose to Georgia, but we beat FSU. I chose the lose to Georgia and beat FSU. That's how much this game means to me personally. We haven't won in a long time, too freaking long. This is our year to win, and if we don't pull it off this year, it's going to be another whole cycle before we can come back at FSU and beat them, and maybe they're better. This feels like potentially a pivot point. Now, could we get three years from now and be like, that game was meaningless, we talked it up, and we hyped it, and it really didn't matter either way who won or who lost. From the vantage point of Monday – it feels pretty big to me. Let me ask you: like on a scale of one to ten, how how nervous are you? Any, any kind of nervousness about this game? Because when you stack up the two teams, seems like we should be a little more comfortable. How nervous are you?
3: I'm at like a six and a half, which is fairly high, middling, if you will. And the reasons for that are a couplefold. One. They are more talented than we are. Granted, that talent is not played well. It does not matter. There is, there is a truism in a rivalry game when these players have shared common fields together in high school, elsewhere, whatever else. They know each other. They know tendencies, the pressure, the extra motivation. It makes things a little bit different. It truly really does. So that's one reason why. And two, I do think Florida State's confidence is in a different place. If you go back and you watch the Clemson game, and this sounds silly to talk about Florida State in this regard, but for the first quarter in a couple of minutes, they they were they were playing good, hard football. And then they just they quit. They quit when they got down 14 nothing in the game. They just stopped playing. I don't know that they're going to quit in this game because we don't have a quarterback who can capably beat them with downfield passes like Trevor Lawrence did. I think their confidence will be higher. Secondly, I'm nervous because guess what Florida State is really good at on defense, Alan? Stopping the run. Guess what we've done against teams that are really good at stopping the run? Suck. Legitimately suck. So, Alan, what's the line for this game? Five points. If that line seems too small for you, it's because it probably is. Florida State gotten blown out by almost every quality opponent they've played. Five points spread. That tells you that Vegas sees the same thing that I'm telling you right now, which is they're excellent at stopping the run, and we have been a dumpster fire against teams that can stop the run. It's a serious concern, I'm nervous about it. There are reasons why I think we can win this game handily, which is why I'm not an 8 or 9 or 10. But 6.5, I've got a healthy fear of this game because I think there's reasons to have it no matter how bad Florida State's looked. How about you?
2: I'm like an 8.5 or a 9, and that's totally irrational. If I'm, We're going to talk through what I think the factors in the game are and where they're at. This is just, I think, a... I don't a result of how much is on the line for this game, which is a total narrative, not actual substantive thing. And I'm emotional about FSU. I hate them. I never want to lose to them. And losing again just feels like it would just be such a kick in the nuts. And so I'm really nervous about this game. The the win is going to be good. The loss is going to be way bad, at least from where I'm sitting right now, in my head, in my heart. So I'm irrationally nervous about it. I've been nervous about this game like for two weeks now because Idaho meant nothing. We're going to win that game. It doesn't matter. And I'm looking ahead to this FSU game like we've got to win. And the storylines keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger for me. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not like freaking out. I'm not panicking because I don't think we're like incapable of winning this game. If we were incapable of winning this game, I wouldn't be nervous at all. Cause it'd just be like, I'm at a one, we're going to get trucked by Bama. What's there to be nervous about. But in this game, there is a lot on the line and I'm pretty nervous. and I don't want us to lose it. The fan in me is for sure coming out. Now we're going to get down to a pick and we'll see what I do on that. But just saying how I feel inside about it is not representative of my confidence in our team. All right, let's talk about Dan Mullen and rivalry games. So urban Meyer famously has these little psychological tricks. He likes to use. He, when he was here, he referred to FSU as the school out West. Uh, Dan said in the pressers that he's not going to do that. Um, do you like that kind of stuff? Do you like the school out west kind of stuff? Or, or would you prefer not doing that? How do you feel like he's going to treat this? And and what's your view of that?
3: I've always thought the school out west kind of stuff is like kind of dumb. I love playing up rivalries. Like I, I would love to talk trash. I know Dan Mullen, maybe the extent of Dan Mullen's trash talk is I'd love to end Florida State season. But I would love to talk some smack. I'd do things to to fire up the team, talk about how much we dislike Florida State. And I'd I'd probably openly talk about how I don't like my rival and I wish ill upon them. But I think like the school we're not going to mention, I don't know, it just kind of always sounded like cheap to me. It sounded silly to me. I get why you do that. So I guess I appreciate the, the nomenclature behind it. I think Mullen has proven in rivalry games to treat them differently. You don't hear Mullen say, this is like any other game, which I think is really important because as you're indicating with your level of nervousness, Alan, this is not like any other game. And Mullen said in his press conference today, which is absolutely correct, if you're having a good season and you lose to your rival, it's a good season, but. And if you're having a bad season and you beat your rival, it's a bad season, but. Um, a bad season, but, you know, you did great. And all you have to do is think of when Ron Zook beat Florida State at Florida State, when he was a lame duck coach, we had nothing to play for. It's Bobby Bowden Field. We take them down. I thought that was a rather monumental moment in a season that was awful. But that's pretty much all I really recall as time has gone on about that season is us carrying Ron Zuck off the field. That's how important these games are. So I think it's really crucial for coaches to acknowledge that because it does make a huge difference. I think Dan Mullen treats it that way. I think the players will treat it that way. And I don't think you're going to hear that silly coach talk about this being a a game. just another game on the schedule and we're going to play it, right? Because it's not true. That's not true. This game does mean a lot more than that. So much so that if you're a Florida fan, you've been a Florida fan for a while. If you think of Florida State, there's a flood of images from games that we played against them that probably only exist for other teams that you've played against that are your hated rivals every single year. Because I can recall moments against Auburn that are huge because the moment was huge. But I'm not going to recall every single game we play against Kentucky or Vanderbilt or whatever else like I would Florida State no matter what the year is like, because you just don't want to ever lose to Florida State. So I think Mullen treats it that way. I don't know if he's got any little things he's going to do. He didn't allow us to know that. But I imagine that he's going to impress upon the team that this is the game that you kind of have to die on the hill to win right now. This is your entire season because the bowl game doesn't matter. Like we've been talking about, this game matters. This is going to put the final exclamation point on this season and give you what you really want.
2: I agree. I, I don't need special names or although I don't mind it. I kinda like the squat west stuff. I thought it was petty and I liked petty in this rivalry. I don't need to be dignified. And and I think Dan Mellon said this earlier in the year. Florida has a lot of rivals for a college football team. You know, you've got the Georgia, Florida State. You've also got Tennessee. We play LSU every year. And, you know, sometimes it gets heated with Kentucky or somebody like that, you know. So you can't like pitch every game as the game, right? You'll burn people out doing that. Now, but this is a unique kind of thing, right? I think the the Georgia game takes on importance because it's for something. This game isn't necessarily for anything. You're not you're not advancing to the SEC title game if you win or lose it. But you have, usually have a, basically a bye week beforehand. This is the last game of the season. You can kind of push those buttons. If you haven't pushed them too hard at the beginning of the year, you can kind of like empty the tank for this one, especially if you're not going to be in the SEC title game. So I'm hoping he's pulling out all the stops. That's what I want him to do as a fan. Like whatever trick plays he's got left in his bag, whatever motivational ploys, whatever he's got to do to get them ready, I want him to use for this game above all else. So hopefully he's going to do that. I want him to treat this as an important game because it is to me. I think it is to the rest of the fan base as well. All right, let's talk about the criminals themselves. It's Willow Taggart's first year. His name is brought up all the time. I think you know that. Maybe you don't know some of his assistants. Walt Bell is his offensive coordinator. That's the first year as well. He's a young guy, 33. Was at Maryland, former wide receiver. Harlan Bennett, DC, is his first year there as well. Uh, he's been a DB coach for a long time, a defensive coordinator for three years at, Mich- at Michigan State. First time as a defensive coordinator with full control. So they've got ten returning starters, six on offense, four on defense. They're fifth overall in talent composite. We keep talking about how talented they are, a ton of talent. Seven five stars for reference, you know, or twelfth in that composite, only two five stars. James, they like to talk about lethal simplicity. Is it, is the simplicity lethal for them? Tell me about what you see when you watch them on offense.
3: So this is our fourth year doing the podcast, and I have researched every team we've played. I watch film. Sometimes, in this case, I will, I will read quotes about it because Taggart is so quotable. And I just wanted to know how he described this evolution of his offense. So before I tell you the current edition of Florida State's offense, let me give you the quick history of Willie Taggart's offense. Willie Taggart is a West Coast guy. That's actually what his offensive philosophy was. He went to high school in Bradenton, Florida, which is right down the street from where I grew up in Sarasota. And he went to Manatee High, which was a rival of my high school, Riverview High School. At any rate, he won a state championship there. And he then went on and really became a coach under the West Coast system. Quick passes, pro-style running attack, very different than what he runs now. At Western Kentucky, he ran the West Coast offense. He gets to USF. They are struggling. They have lost a bunch of games in a row. And essentially in the middle of like a moment of trying to soul search and figure out what to do, he draws a play up in the dirt as he describes it, which is very simple because the players are saying, let's just run something where we're spread out and being an open field. And that begins to change the offense for really Taggart. He then hires his former high school coach. Who's the coach currently was the coach currently at Manatee where he had himself installed the spread after Taggart left, had a lot of success. He comes in as a consultant. They change the whole playbook over they have a lot of success at USF and he gets hired to Florida State. When you're reading the quotes about this, it's it's kind of unbelievable because keep in mind that one of my favorite things in football is to study football theory, playbooks, how they're run, why you run them. And really, if you look at Willie Taggart, it's the opposite on purpose. Lethal simplicity. He wants up-tempo and no huddle. But in reality, here is his own quote. Let me give you, Alan, the philosophy right Tell here. me When you're in the backyard... And coach isn't bothering you. You're the best thing out there. You're no good when you're trying to do all the things the coaches tell you to do. That's his quote to which he basically says he really wants his team to play backyard football. The more the coach is trying to get you to understand a scheme or a play design, the worse that you are. So as an example of a Willie Taggart play, they would call a play the Cincinnati Bengals. It was one play. If they called Cincinnati, the play went left. If they called the Bengals, it went right. That would be an example of their play. Now, that could just be a play call, but that was actually their entire play. That's a play. And the next play would be the Miami Dolphins, same thing. And they put like nine of these plays and they'd run them in their games. This works kind of nice when you're at USF and you're not playing a lot of quality opponents or you're running very basic, simple schemes. But what you can't help but recognize when you watch this team on film is it's not simplicity- like Voltaire says, where you want to make things as simple as you possibly can. And then, you know, really no simpler. Einstein says, this is like, this is sort of not understanding scheme. A lot has been made of the fact that Kinnan, who was his old high school coach, is not there to help him this year. And that he probably really was the guy who actually designed a coherent offense. Now, Walt Bell has designed offenses. He's been a guy as their offensive coordinator who has been solid. So I'm not sure what's going on with regards to how that relationship works per se, but all I know is on film, their goal is to run an up-tempo, no-huddle offense that in reality is a, I would call, a poor man's spread offense. Why? Because they intentionally do not teach their players the complicated concepts that Dan Mullen would teach us. So whereas Urban Meyer and Dan Mullen teach their receivers to understand coverages to understand why they're running the route, Willie Taggart is precisely the opposite. I want you to run fast and make plays. It's backyard football. It's kind of insane. You'd have a hard time, Alan, finding another coach that would even remotely express this kind of view as a philosophy.
2: Yeah, it's kind of funny because that quote there is basically you're condemning yourself as a coach. It's like you're better off when the coach isn't bothering you. Now, if you're all in your head and you're just thinking – and you're not reacting. You That is co- That is kind of a thing you want football players to do. You don't want them thinking you want them playing. But that's because they've internalized so much of the philosophy and what they're supposed to do as a player that they don't think about. It. It's like if you ever played baseball, if you play a position over and over and over again, if you're playing second base and the ball is hit to right field, you don't have to think, I need to run out and be the cutoff man or I need to cover the back. You just do it instinctively. Because if you're thinking that, you're going to be a step slow. And you so you want them to internalize that. You don't want them to, to not know, though, if if they're if they're just still thinking in their head, that means you're not coaching them well enough or that they're too dumb to understand it. So quite an indictment on himself, I think, as a coach, as a teacher of the game.
3: It's amazing when you when you broaden the scope here and you look at what other coaches say about Willie Tiger Would coaches on his own staff, talk about stuff that comes directly from his philosophy. And one of that main things, and this is an actual quote is when you don't have to spend a lot of time teaching, you can spend a lot of time giving your players confidence and energy and excitement and energy and excitement is what wins football games. Those are real quotes. Those are real things. I was maybe horrified to, to uncover this during my study of Willie Taggart slash excited to know that he's coaching at Florida state. (laughs) And I'm trying to, I'm I'm being as unbiased as I can. When I do the analysis here, Alan, you know, I look at it just to see what the numbers say. And I'm reporting these quotes because it's the best way to give insight on what their actual philosophy is. And that is what it is. It's it's really a, a way too basic system, which relies on putting an athlete in space, but yet doesn't rely on teaching people what the heck they're doing. And that, I think, Alan, is the main narrative for why you can have a top five team talent wise. That is an absolute dumpster fire this season. That explains it better than anything else. So numbers-wise, what do they do well on offense? They're decent at passing the football, but those numbers are even a bit of a mirage. A lot of these games, they've gone down big. They've just had to throw a lot, and their numbers total is probably higher than it should be. Their completion percentage is absolutely terrible. Low 50s. Uh, they have a horrific rushing attack, and they have the best running back recruit in the entire country. A guy that almost certainly is going to play in the NFL. Can't get the guy yards averaging a woeful four yards per carry. They throw a ton of picks and take a ton of sacks. They are the definition of a bad offense. Their offensive
2: line is terrible, terrible.
3: but those guys are talented. So at some point in time, it's tricky. Now, Jimbo Fisher ran a really complicated offensive Florida State offense where normally on this show I talk about how fantastic it is and how hard it is to stop. The total opposite when you watch Florida State's offense now. So the real question is how should we defend them? Our base defense should give Florida State tremendous problems in this game. This is a fantastic matchup for us across the board. They cannot run the ball, which is something that really affected us. Missouri's rushing attack combined with their passing attack was good. Francois takes all sorts of ill-advised chances, primarily because he has no time. And there's no rhyme or reason why they should ever be able to block us. They do not employ multiple tight ends. You cannot find examples of them basically ever doing it because they run a very high schoolish spread system where you do not utilize them. So what we talked about was this main issue of having teams load up two tight ends on us is not something Florida State runs. It's hard to believe they're going to just install that this week to do it against us. In absence of that, we've been very successful against teams that want to allow just their O-line and running backs to block. We've been extremely successful. So the nutshell takeaway I have here is all things being considered, Alan, it looks like our defense versus their offense is a wonderful matchup with the exception of the fact that they have top talented receivers. And if Francois does get time and our safeties do what they do best, which is blow a coverage or be in the wrong place, they can punish you with quick scores.
2: You saw that at the end of the BC game. I mean, Francois is a talented guy. He's got a big arm. He can put down the field. And Terry, the wide receiver, blew by that BC corner and like waltzed into the end zone. So, And then we saw Cam Akers, a game I was really hoping that they would lose, and they did. I forget which game this was. He basically got them back in it by having like an 80-yard run. He's a talented – dude, you watch them play, and you're like, these guys are all super talented. Okay, what about defense? What are they trying to do? Are they successful at it?
3: So their defense switched from a 3-4 like we run to a 4-3. And, again, I'm going to give you some quotes from their defensive coordinator who was a successful DB coach, co-defensive coordinator, like I mentioned, Michigan State. This is not – a defensive coordinator in the mold of most Florida State defensive coordinators that are storied, fantastic. This guy's very much an experiment, if you will. But what's the quote here? If you could guess, you're probably already guessing. Simple, aggressive, just how Coach Taggart likes it. Here is the quote from their offensive coordinator about the defense Florida State runs. This is Florida State's offensive coordinator about the defense Florida State runs. Every coach in the country on offense can tell you where they're going to be lined up on first and second down. Now, he's not saying this as a critique.
2: Saying because it's simple and this aggressive. This isn't
3: a puff piece. He's he's commenting on how simple and aggressive it is, and how how excellent they are. Now, there's some truth to being able to line up in a simple set. The Seattle Seahawks made a phenomenal defense lined up in basically the same set. They played press man. They did those sort of things. It's what they did. They,
2: you knew what they were going to do, and you, they couldn't stop it. and, and you. you couldn't stop it. Yeah. So
3: I'm not going to knock that as a defensive strategy. However, this Florida State defense is strong against the run, milling against the pass, struggles to get picks, struggles to get sacks, having a hard time. This is when you would want to imply tactical creativity to enhance your results. So what's interesting about this is this might be the key difference in the game, Alan. Missouri, fantastic against the run, terrible against the pass, far less talented than Florida State. It's very easy to build a little narrative here that says, this game should really worry us because Florida State looks similar. The main difference is this Missouri, very creative on defense. Missouri was constantly in that game, blitzing corners from the edge, switching linebackers for corners, rotating safeties. Florida State never does that. They're going to have them press man on the edge, and those guys are going to play man every single down. Every single down. They will do nothing else. Their linebackers may blitz, their safeties may blitz, but the corner blitzing, the corner run help is what's really neutered our run game when we're running our spread option stuff. That's not what they do. So again, unless Florida State leaves their philosophy, that's why we're talking a lot about philosophy on this podcast, unless they leave their base philosophy, it's very unlikely you're going to see Florida State's corners doing anything that would trick us. So what does this mean, Alan? This means this game sets up very well for Dan Mullen to play call his way into points. Because if you take a Florida State team that at times is very undisciplined and you're able to give them a look to where you know exactly what your matchup is, If you had enough of those, you were able to do really well. Dan has done a very good job putting us in those situations. What's the wild card here, Alan? The wild card is Felipe Franks. In the Missouri game, we had wide open throws for the first quarter and half of that game. Just wide open receivers, and we didn't hit a single one of them. That threw that game off the rails. Now, thankfully, Florida State does not have the offense Missouri has, but that narrative still exists in this game. where We get wide open guys, and Franks just misses all of them. What happens then in that situation, we could be in some trouble. So what do we need to look for? The same exact thing we need to look for against Missouri. We have got to throw the ball for more than 200 yards in this game. We cannot have a Missouri-like showing where we throw for 100 yards or 110 yards and expect to win this game. We have got to be competent in the passing game.
2: And they have some talented guys there as well. Um, The first guy I'll mention is Brian Burns. He stands out on film. Tall, lanky guy, rushes the passer. is super hard to block. Could give us a lot of trouble provides a lot of pressure we're gonna to have to do something with him they've got some decent linebackers in corners don Tavis jackson rashad fenton there's other guys there's some big name guys too on that defense who have who are very highly recruited so they have talent like you'll you'll notice it up and down the field can they employ it on saturday okay penalties and turnover margin were both horrible in penalties actually fsu is worse than us that that <laughs> That's not good news for them. So I would I would expect a highly penalized game. Uh, if we can cut down on those, that'll really help us because I don't think that they can. And I think they, they've turned the ball over all the time. So this has got to be a game where we have to be on the plus side. We have been when we've won. When we haven't been, we've struggled. That's basic football. That's going to show up in this game as well. Injuries, some good news. Brad Stewart, Heggie, Swain. Moral Stevens, all those guys are expected to be back. Who knows whether that's actually true. That's what Dan indicated in his uh, press conference here today. All those guys could and should contribute. We need all those guys. Um, if you're watching Kadarius Tony field a punt, you know why we need Freddie Swain. Moral Stevens can contribute. Brett Heggie is not a starter, can get some minutes. And then Brad Stewart, a valuable piece in that safety puzzle if you put him in the right Situation. All right, James, before we give a prediction, I'll you know, I'll start with keys to victory. I usually put you on the spot. I'll go first here. This is gonna come down to me their offensive line, our defensive line. We have such an advantage here, I think schematically, and like just talent and performance-wise, their offensive line is abysmal. If they are blocking us, that means we are failing, failing, failing. You watch guys just run right around their left tackle, their right tackle. You get push up the middle. Now, I've said on this podcast frequently, we're getting no push up the middle from our defensive tackles. They are just guys. They should still be able to be somewhat effective in this game. And if they're getting push, I think Polite, Zuniga, Jefferson could have a freaking field day. Like you said, Francois, I have such respect for him because he gets annihilated in games. 3 years ago, I watched I was like, I don't know how this guy made it to the end of the season cuz he just got obliterated. And then last year he got hurt in the first game, getting obliterated. This year he takes a ton of hits and he does take chances. We have to take advantage of that. That is the whole story. If we get up early in this game, we're going to win by probably 20. I do think that they will quit. They've shown that over and over and over again. If they if we're up by 20 points, it might be 30 points. We have a chance to embarrass them. I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. I think it's going to be kind of close because as you said, I think that they're going to be able to limit what we want to do on offense enough to keep this close. Unless we get just up huge early because we've picked them off or we've got a fumble. Dan has a nice trick play in his pocket, but I think that they're going to be motivated enough early on that we're going to be able to stick with it. And I don't know their problem. They don't make any adjustments. So if we've solved them, if we've figured them out, that's going to bode well for us. We'll see, though. I, this game, is everything is on the line for them. So maybe they do blitz their corners. Maybe they do put some tight ends in the game because you know we've put that on tape. That's how you would want to block us. It's how you would want to defend us. I am nervous about that. Again, I don't know if that's rational, but I am nervous about that. On offense, Felipe has done a fairly good job of not turning the ball over. You know, A few fumbles here or there, some picks, obviously. But when he's played well, he hasn't turned the ball over. We need him to play well. We don't need him to come in and dominate, but we need him to be the efficient guy he can be. Is he capable of that in this environment, on the road, in a game that's not a big game, but it's a big game? And so I don't want it to be just so simple that we don't turn the ball over and we make them turn the ball over. But momentum is going to be big in this game. There's going to be a lot of emotions. Like I said, if we get up, I think we roll them. If it's close, you know, this team has been resilient. They're not going to give up. But if FSU's talent, if they get on a roll and they get confidence, that's way worse for us. So I don't know. Watch that line of scrimmage. If, Early on, we are blowing them up. That's going to bode well for us all game long, and they're not going to be able to stop it.
3: This game has a lot of interesting ways to look at it, ways things could swing, because both teams have some flaws and some holes. But I think I'm going to look at the macro here. We have a better coaching staff across the board, much better. They have better players in a majority of positions than we have, but those players aren't producing at the level we've produced, but the consistency we've produced at. So I'm not going to negate the talent, but there's a higher production value out of our players than their players for a lot of them. Francois is definitely an X factor. For as much as he gets maligned, like you mentioned, I think he's actually a very good quarterback who just struggles because he has no time to throw the football. And he's tough as nails. He stands in there and he makes his throws. He can he can win you games, which he did against BCE, And he can also lose you games by throwing the ball over the yard. This game feels eerily similar to the Missouri game. With the exception of the fact that Missouri did not allow a lot of sacks, like we mentioned, Florida State does, which gives me great confidence. They don't get the ball out on time like Missouri does. And that Missouri had a quick game, and Florida State does not. And so I think, for me, what's our kryptonite? Our kryptonite is teams that can play two tight ends. Florida State does not do that. So I'm going to continue to look at kind of the same thing that was the recipe for that Missouri game, which is we're going to have to be able to pass the football, like we mentioned. Franks is going to have to be able to make easy throws. Florida State plays a lot of man which means we're going to have to be able to win on slant routes, especially play action slant routes. Their linebackers will sell to stop the run. They're first and foremost a run-stopping team. I think they're going to be aware of the fact that we're going to want to establish more of a run game than we could against Missouri. Florida State's good against the run. I do not expect us to be able to run the ball well, which I think is going to give Dan Mullen a little bit of anxiety this week because he knew against Missouri we had to pass and we couldn't do it. So I imagine there's a little bit of like in the back of my head, what do we do? I think that's a reason, Allen. And we're going to go way out here on this one. Why Mullen during the press conference said, we'll decide during the game if Emory Jones plays. Yes, I want to mention this. And I think that's part of it is Dan Mullen's already seen one time that Frank's almost single-handedly cost us that Missouri game. Even though you had other guys like Voshon blowing coverages, he just wasn't there making easy throws. I I expect in this game, Alan, Dan Mullen have a much quicker trigger with Franks. If we're out there and receivers are open and we're not hitting them, I would imagine you will see Emery come into this football game because Dan is not going to wait until this game is over to insert Emery Jones, and he's not going to do it. He's just not going to afford Franks that kind of leash. I think that was a very interesting moment by him to make that
2: mention. Well, I think also that's a little bit of gamesmanship that he likes to play because if, if you say Emery Jones might play in this game, you've got to prep for him. That's another thing that's on the... FSU coaches plate. Maybe they just ignore that, but that's the typical football coach. I've shown you this. You've got to prep for it. You've got to spend time, valuable practice time during the week, prepping for an, a different kind of guy. My anticipation, like unless things just go way, way, way bad is that we don't see Emory Jones in this game. Uh, I don't think he wants to put him in that type of game without being able to prep him like he would given a bye week. There's a chance because he played well this past week. Maybe he does get in the game. I'd be okay with that if it's effective. Um, but I don't think we see him. I think that's a little bit of gamesmanship. I think, like you said, Dan understands that, again, we got to pull, pull out all the stops here offensively. There's no Kyle Trask waiting there to do kind of what Franks could do. If you bring in Emery, it's going to be a different game plan. It's going to be a reduced playbook. I don't think he's going to be quick to do that, but I don't think he's going to be as slow as he was against missouri because this is a game we really do want to win fans are not going to remember losing to missouri six seven years from now if we have a successful season they will remember this loss in this year um and so not to put more pressure on dan or the players but that's kind of where we're at okay james are you ready to make a prediction
3: i'm ready so my my key to victory is being able to competently pass the ball on the defensive side of the ball, I think we're lined up really well. I like our matchups. I think in that regard, it's just controlling the big play. Florida State's not going to drive the ball down the field on you. They're going to have to create a big play for a touchdown. So it's limit big plays on defense. On offense, it's competently pass the football. I think we can do that on offense primarily because I think Dan Mullen's play calling will get us into looks where we can handle that. Although the Missouri game was an absolute train wreck, I think that game was compounded by the fact that Missouri's offense was able to put a lot of pressure on us in that game that I don't think Florida State's offense can do. Because of that, I think there'll be enough possessions, enough situations in this game where our superior coaching staff will win out over a team that in reality does like to play backyard football. Dan Mullen, as we mentioned, has a history of beating teams like this. When you're an ultimate system guy, you have a bunch of believers on your team. These guys believe in the process. They believe in the system. They don't quit because they think it's going to work. Florida State's precisely the opposite. When you have a very low level of belief in whatever it is that you're doing, you abandon it when things go against you because you have no real foundation. No real foundation. So I think what I'm saying here is that Florida is not going to get off to the slow start they did against Missouri because that will spell a totally different game for them. I expect this game to get off to a favorable start for Florida, not maybe in the first few minutes, but over the first half to where we feel comfortable. And once we feel comfortable, I think we win this game handily. I think this is a two or three touchdown victory for us because of the organization on this football team. So I'm going to say that we win this game 31-17 at Florida State. It's our first win in five tries, right? We've lost four in a row. It would be very therapeutic, very nice for the fan base puts us at nine wins with a chance to get 10 in the bowl game. And I think it will leave all of us feeling very, very good. So Florida wins 31-17. Alan, what do you got?
2: Wow. I would love that. Uh, So I think one of the keys here is going to be our receivers winning those one-on-one matchups. And I think that we have the guys to do it. Jefferson, Grimes, Tony, even Swain and Hammond have all shown that they can get open. And in a, a simplified coverage, I think Franks can hit them. I would look for Tony again. He got a lot of touches against Idaho, which we didn't need him at all. I think that's a little bit of prep for this game. Look for I'd say over a hundred yards. Let's say 125 yards total rushing and receiving from Tony. If we can get that from him, I think we win. Also, I'm gonna say three turnovers for us. You know, FSU turning the ball to over over three times. If we do that. I think we went handily. This line is that five points is as Bill Simmons would say in the Vegas zone. They don't know what to do with this game. I think we either win big or we lose close. So that five points is almost like a hedge. Like they don't really know what to do. So we'll just put a weird number on it. Like five, you don't see a lot of like four and five lines that shows me that there's a lot of uncertainty about this game is what FSU is going to show up. The one that just beat Boston college. Or the one that's quit in almost every other game. I hope and I think we might get the one that quits if we get up early, depending on when those turnovers come. I'm gonna I'm pretty close to you. I was gonna say thirty-four to twenty with maybe a late score for them tacked on just to make it look a, a little more nice that they're gonna keep, you know, trying to put points on the board up until the very end. If that happens, that's a big day for the Gators. The other side of that is a painful day. I think we lose like a 1916 kind of game. I don't want that. I don't want that. You've heard it in my voice how many times I said I want this game. We'll see what happens. I will certainly be watching and rooting. We need a big Gators victory this week. Did you hear my fandom come out on this one way more than any other ones. Um, so, yeah, this will be a huge win for the Gators. We haven't been able to say that in a while. Even if FSU was good, it didn't feel like. Us winning would accomplish that much. feels like it could accomplish a lot this year.
3: And fun fact for you podcast listeners. One, Alan Williams has never been to Doke to watch a Florida-Florida State game. So if you were going this weekend, pour one out for our homie, Alan, who has yet to make it there.
2: One day. One day. Every time I'm about to go, I don't. And most of the time, I've been glad that I didn't because we lost. So going around the road and losing is the worst. Fun parting
3: stat before we look at this weekend's games that are not Florida-Florida State the winner of this game has out-recruited the other one 13 straight years.
2: Very interesting.
3: Now, a lot of that, in my opinion, is shenanigans. It's just who's having the better Urban year. Meyer is yeah. at Florida when you know, Bobby Bowden's going downhill, and then dumpster fire coaches at Florida while Jimbo Fisher's there. So a little bit mirage However, if you're into that kind of thing, could be a big deal. Regardless, it's definitely important. I think both of us are hoping that our predictive scores are as accurate as they were in the I Yeah, game. crazy that we nailed that number. Yep, national games this week. There are a bunch of good ones. We selected some of which we think are the best. We will start with the defending national champions UCF <laughs> get out, on the road get out of here. against USF. Uh, UCF a 15
2: point favorite. This game was really close last year. It was a great game. I don't think it's going to be a great game. I don't think USF has it. They've they, offensively they haven't shown they can keep pace with anybody like UCF. I've picked against UCF a couple times. I won't do it this week. This line seems great for UCF Uh, 15 feels like they're going by a lot more than that.
3: I think Vegas might think there might be a little letdown on the road against USF rivalry game. Either way. I like that one, Oklahoma minus one against West Virginia. Again, that I cannot wait to watch. This should be an incredible, incredible football game.
2: I'm definitely taking West Virginia here. It's at home. I I would be inclined to like really be favoring them. If they had won last week, they don't have as much on the table as Oklahoma, but Oklahoma is not shown they can stop Anybody, Kansas put up numbers against them. This feels like a game that it's going to be one of those Big Twelve, fifty-four, fifty-five kind of games. But West Virginia at home, Oklahoma's defense just seeming like taking steps back every week. I have to take West Virginia here.
3: The home team, I think, would win this game regardless. That's but this point. is going to be a manic to the wire game. You can't stop Kyler Murray in Oklahoma, and you can't stop Will Greer in West Virginia. They're going to score 40 to 50. Super, super fun. I'm taking Will Greer as his last game that I can take him in a regular season game. It will be very sad not to have the Will Greer watch each and every week. Will Greer, thank you. Hopefully you'll win this one and we'll get another game before the bowl game to predict for you. Washington on the road against Mike Leach's Washington State. They have been hot as fire. Washington State, two and a half point favorites over a team preseason. That was a very popular playoff pick in Washington. Gardner
2: Minshew getting it done, the mustache every week. This is such an interesting line. You can see it reflected that Washington State is not even a full like three-point favorite. So that tells you Vegas is thinks that Washington is maybe a slightly better team. I, I've i loved Washington State this year. They kind of should be undefeated. They, they probably should have won that USC game. They looked great last week. I'm going to keep riding Mike Leach. Yeah, I think they're peaking.
3: I think if you're going to bet Washington State, this is the time. Yes, it's a rivalry game. Yes, Washington's super organized, systematic. Tends to give Mike Leach's team trouble. Yeah, they've actually really
2: hammered them in the
3: previous years. Tends to give them trouble because they're so disciplined on defense. But this just feels like a different Mike Leach team this year. It feels like he's going to break through. Maybe because I'm just rooting for him to do it because I love Mike Leach. But either way, I'm going to take Washington State. Auburn, in a game that used to mean something, but this year does not. (laughs) On the road against Alabama. Alabama, 24.5-point favorites. Any chance anything crazy happens
2: in this one? No. But this line's too high in a rivalry game. And Tua, especially when you, if you if you want to put the math, the actuarial math on this, the fact that Tua might be a little hurt and banged up, or he is. How much does he play in this game? How effective is he? Shrinks that outcome number for me. I'm definitely taking Auburn in this game. Even I could totally see Alabama winning by 30-35. But Auburn's talented enough to keep it close, I think.
3: Yeah, just another amazing Alabama favorite line here. Twenty
2: four and now. a half in an Iron Bowl. It's incredible, really. It is, but I'm going to take Alabama.
3: Okay, I just, I just feel like this is the prime scenario for them. They played poorly against Citadel. They're going to come out like they did against LSU and play a perfect game, and Auburn can't match that. But what's
2: one. that number? Even, the, even, what if they? What was the end of that game? Twenty nine nothing.
3: Twenty four nothing. Okay. Mississippi State, LSU was, what was LSU's score? I don't even remember. I think it was 24 or 20, 29. Yeah. So they Whatever could
2: they could win like that and still not cover.
3: But Auburn is not as good as LSU or Mississippi State. So therefore, I think this will get more inflated. Okay. I, 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 like, I like Bama here like maybe 44 to 10. Seems reasonable, which is crazy. I mean, again, it's high. That's a high line, but until proven otherwise. The best argument there is two it gets hurt, in which case that becomes a very different game. South Carolina on the road against Clemson. Clemson Allen only favored by a field goal. No, I'm just kidding. Favored by 26 points in this one. What do you think (laughs) here?
2: These these big numbers in a rivalry game, but South Carolina hasn't shown me that they can do anything worthwhile on offense. Clemson is moving forward. They seem to be playing better and better every week. This is at Clemson, so I'm a little more comfortable taking this number at 26. This is a nightmare
3: matchup for South Carolina. Their defense is awful, as we chronicled very well on this podcast. Their offense is pretty good, but unfortunately for them, Clemson's defense is extremely good. This just seems like a game that's going to get away from South Carolina. I like Clemson and the points here. LSU, number seven in the country, LSU, on the road against A&M.
2: Weird line here, Alan. a favored by two. I was ready to like pick a as the underdog here until I looked at the line and but they're favored but I kind of still want to pick them because I think they're just going to win and if they're I think they're going to win that two points shouldn't bother me so I'll take a I
3: like AM here as well because I feel like Jimbo Fisher although his team has been a little bit up and down this year he's a better coach this is late in the season a ms team is bought in their fans are bought in LSU I think is maybe trending down a little bit not as much on the line for Some them question marks are starting to be raised about where they are and where they're going I like AM here. Notre Dame. Only ten and a half point favorites on the road against USC. This is typically a very quirky game. USC way trending in the wrong direction here.
2: I'm tempted to predict some oddities happening in this game, but Notre Dame's just been so efficient. And they have book back. Um I don't know that I would bet this game because it just feels weird. The line feels weird. The whole thing feels weird to me. You know, we have these weeks at the end of the year where kind of chaos happens. You think, all right, we've got our playoff teams. Let's go ahead and put them on the bracket. And then something weird happens. So I'll take Notre Dame, but I, I wouldn't bet it.
3: Yeah, I love, love Notre Dame in this game. I think I'd back the truck up and, and, and bet well, we'll and lot. We'll see how it goes then. USC is talented, but this is a very good, well-organized Notre Dame team against the USC team that is going in all sorts of wrong directions. Michigan, minus four versus Ohio State. Also a noon game, unfortunately for us Florida fans.
2: Who do you like in this one? I like Michigan a lot. Ohio State seems like they're hanging on by a thread, both offensively and defensively. Michigan's defense, I think, is going to put the screws to them. Ohio State will still score some points. If this was in Michigan, I I wouldn't have any doubts. You know, Harbaugh has his little bit of his demons here against Ohio State two years ago. They should have won in that fourth down call, and they didn't. Can they get over the hump? I think they do. Ohio State just seems like they're, I mean, they've been a wonky place all year. They keep winning these weird games, but I think their luck runs out here.
3: I was ready to pronounce Michigan ready to like really win this game and announce themselves in the playoffs. And then they played Indiana. And that game,
2: Allen, was anything but impressive. Certainly. But is that just the classic like trap game you're looking forward to your big game that means everything for you? I hope it is. That's the
3: narrative you hope for as a Michigan fan. I don't know. As dead as Urban Meyer looks on the sideline, as wrong as they look, here they are. One loss yet again. Seemingly every year, finding themselves in a the game at home against an opponent that has, that just cannot beat them. I'm not going to take Ohio State here because their defense is
2: is seriously flawed, and that helps. I Michigan, if you were going to wonder that, can they? Put up enough points and well against this RC defense, they probably And that tends to be the problem with Michigan is if
3: they lose, it's because a team like Northwestern stifles them and they have a really hard time getting to twenty something points. I don't think that's the problem here. So I like Michigan in this game, but I'm not gonna pronounce Urban dead yet because that guy finds a way to win and win and win even when no one thinks he's gonna
2: if you had to put money on one side of this question other is Urban the coach at Ohio State next year?
3: I'm, it certainly seems like the smart money is, is no, given where things are going, how things look, how he looks, given what happened at Florida, given the lessons he's learned in his life. It, it really feels
2: like no, but what else would he that's do? That's a weird one. Yeah. It's hard to imagine. I mean, everyone seems to be predicting that. It just seems too what would he do? convenient a, a scenario. I Where's don't know. he
3: going to go? He's still a young guy. I don't know. It seems crazy. And, uh, the story of Urban is obviously crazy anyway. If you
2: look at college coaches, he's an anomaly in that regard. Okay, one last question. There's a lot of talk, you know, that the Gators are in line if things break the white way, that they could be selected for a New Year's Six Bowl. If you're not familiar with that, that includes the two playoff games plus the four premium bowls. The committee selects those matchups from their rankings. So the Gators might be in a New Year's Six Bowl. Do you care? Not at all. Not at all.
3: But I'm also like the, the bullmonger. I'm like the Grinch of Bulls. Like, so it should be our you know, That's my thing. That's my thing. Here's why I'm the Grinch of Bulls. If you're new to the show and you're wondering, wait a minute, isn't that a great thing? A long time ago, one of my good high school buddies, David Boss, we've had on this very show, went to Michigan. Then he played in the NFL and he won two Super Bowls. Very talented guy. And I recall talking to him after Michigan had lost to go to, at the time it was not the playoff, but to go to the national title. They went to the Rose Bowl and they got hammered by I can't remember who. This is like 2003 or 4, And I remember seeing him that February saying, hey, David, like, I've got this narrative about bowl games. Players don't really care. Did you guys care going to that game? He's like, no. None of us wanted to be there. None of us wanted to play in that dumb game. None of us cared. The fans care. The coaches care because it's incentive for them. But like the players, just do not, they don't want to play. And in his case, he was going to the NFL. You don't want to get hurt anymore. You're just done playing right? You're making quote unquote business decisions. So if you look at previous years, Lennon Fournette says out a bowl game, right? They're showing you the reality of the motivations of these players. So if we're in the Outback Bowl or we're in the name whatever bowl you want to name, does that really move the needle for me? No, it doesn't. Now I will say this, if you make it to a sugar bowl, a fiesta bowl, an orange bowl, you know, Rose Bowl, That's probably something that you can mark down in your annals. The players still are indicating they don't really care if you're a big program where your season failed. We might care a little more this year because we're upstarts. But to me, it just doesn't mean anything. I just don't buy into bowl games meaning anything for recruiting. I don't buy into it meaning anything for the fan base. Fans don't even want to go to these games most of the time. So I think a 10-win season means something because that creates much more momentum among your fan base than some bowl that you played in does. That's how I view it. So it doesn't move the needle for me. But if, Alan, I will say this, if a New Year's Bowl means that we win 10 games and we win it in a fashion against a decent opponent where we get more end-season momentum, even if it's mythical, fine, I'll take it. Versus if we're playing in, you know, I don't know, the, the pick your whatever grass-cutter bowl out in San Diego.
2: Right. I, bowl season, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I don't really care. I don't really excited. Even if it's a, a great matchup, it's hard to really... Put any weight on it because, yeah, who cares? Is it, I'm not saying who cares, but like which team cares the most is often the biggest predictor, and you can't predict that. I think at this point in our. Whether you're a world class
1: athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well being and proper recovery for top notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network.